0: This podcast is brought to you by Storykingbooks.com. Sign up to receive a free copy of my latest ebook novella, Kane's Confession." If you would like to learn how to support this show, visit www.patreon.com forward/thestoryking. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is writer, actor, and filmmaker, Ian Mark. Ian Mark is an award-winning director, actor, producer, and writer. He runs Pasadonuts LLC, where he hosts and directs weekly live-streamed improv shows. Today, we're going to discuss both his book and film projects. Here is my conversation with Ian Mark. Well, welcome to the Story King podcast, Ian.
1: Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Absolutely. I'd like to hear your story. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, that sort of thing?
1: Uh, sure. I am an author and filmmaker. I'm the author of Love from Amanda to Zoe, which is available now from uh, Simon & Schuster slash Omnific Publishing, uh, anywhere you can get an ebook, and it's on Amazon and also non-Amazon places if you want to support people other than Jeff Bezos. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I write. I am a creative, I do a lot of different stuff, but I think I'm mostly here to talk about my writing, which I'm very excited to do.
0: Awesome. So, now before we even get into like your specific projects, I understand you you did sort of start out getting some placements in magazines, is that right?
1: Yeah, uh, I actually had my first publications when I was in high school My first piece was something I wrote for school and my English teacher was like, oh, you could submit this to the local paper. They might publish it. And so that was my first article. That was junior year of uh, high school. And then the next year I was like, huh, how do people get stuff in bigger magazines? And I pitched a concept to Boston Globe magazine that was comparing uh, getting into college, like uh, the dating game where you're kind of talking to all these suitors and trying to put (laughs) your best foot forward. Uh, And much to my surprise, they got back to me like two weeks after I cold pitched it. And they were like, we think this is great. We want to run it. Uh, Here's our contract. And they sent me over a contract. And at this point, I had not had, I had barely had any jobs, certainly no writing jobs. And the contract had a kill rate in it, which for people who don't know, a kill rate is what they pay you if they decide not to use your piece after they've told you they want to write it. Hmm. And the kill rate itself would have been more than I had ever made for <laughs> writing. So I was like, I wrote one paragraph in this pitch, and now they're just going to offer me this money with the content. Like I would, I would have accepted the contract with no kill rate for like a fraction of what they were offering. That's awesome. So yeah, those that was, that was that was my start, and then I've had I've had some short stories published in other places, but uh, none none of the other ones came with a kill rate.
0: Very cool. So that was Boston Globe with the kill rate.
1: Yeah, Boston Globe with Boston Globe magazine, like the thing that comes out every Sunday. I, I don't know if you've ever been to Boston or, or where you're from, but not the regular paper, like the glossy one that uh, has nice animations and is right, right. To be like a little more highbrow.
0: Gotcha. Um, now, so have you been writing for a long time? Did you always have an interest in writing? Was it just sort of a natural gift?
1: Yeah. I I like to say that if uh, I had been around like a hundred years ago and you had to write on a typewriter, or write with your hand, like I wouldn't have done it. Writing has come very easily to me. I would not do it if it was hard. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) Um, So I remember I wrote a story when I was like 13, I think, in eighth grade or something also for school that was, I didn't think that was like a, it was like kind of a monkey-ish version of like 1984. Uh. And my teacher like called home to tell my parents that like I should be doing this more. And I was like, okay. Uh, And then I, I didn't really do it on my own until I got to college. And that's, well, I guess other than the magazine stuff that I mentioned, like I would only do it for assignments. And then when I got to college, I was kind of like, Hmm, this seems to be the thing that lights up my mind the most. Like, let's see if I'm actually good at it or I just have that kind of thing where it's like, you're good for a kid.
0: Right. Right. Now, when you were in high school and people were to ask you, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you have said back then?
1: Oh, I would have. Well, I I would have said I want to be a quarterback or or a point guard (laughs) in the NFL or the NBA. I Uh, I was a complete jock growing up. I ignored all advice from my parents or teachers that at 5'11 and 150 pounds, I wasn't going to be big (laughs) enough for either of those pursuits. And my mom, I remember telling me as early as ninth grade, like you should do improv and people would say you should write. And I would say, I don't want to do those things. And now I'm 26 and I spend almost all my time writing and doing improv and acting. Wow. But,
0: usually it's one or the other, right? There's the jock and there's the, the guys and girls into the arts. You know, it's, they're usually not one and the same person. So that's interesting that you had a, an interest in the sports there.
1: That is the stereotype. But I was the arty, I was the artsy dude. I was the jock. I was also, I had a job uh, over in high school and going on into college where I was a programmer for Steven Pinker's lab at Harvard. So I hit oh, all wow. the stereotypes, the jock, the nerd, the artist. Right. Uh, <laughs> I feel like these stereotypes that are out there are just so restrictive. And the more people you meet, especially out here in LA, like, people have their hands in a lot of different pies. Like people can do a lot of different things. If you're creative or smart in one area, you probably can do other stuff. And I don't know. I was always kind of, you know, I was the football player, but I was the football player who was like spending, would go home and like read, read several books, uh, read, just like read novels or until I got to the age where I was playing football, like seventh grade, sixth grade, fifth grade, I would like pretend to be sick so I could stay home and just read like these new books that I had gotten. So I was right. always kind of a walking contradiction, I suppose, if you're thinking in stereotypical you. terms.
0: I got you. It is a stereotype. Absolutely. But but stereotypes, uh, you know, they form for, for reasons, right? So usually there's some degree of truth in it, but in your case, uh, you sort of broke that whole uh, thing there. So very cool.
1: For sure. For sure. Um, well, which do you fall into?
0: Uh, um, I was always more into to the arts. Yeah, the sports. I was never into like watching sports. I you know I'd play with my friends growing up, different stuff, uh, baseball and so forth. But I was never really. Uh, I was always into movies, music, and later on books. So, so oh. I fall into the stereotype a little bit.
1: <laughs> Nothing wrong with
0: that. <laughs> right. So let's talk about your. Uh, three projects I'd like to discuss. We'll start with your debut novel, Love from Amanda to Zoe. Without giving too much away, what is that one about and what's the inspiration behind it?
1: Okay, I think I can do a good job of talking about it without giving too much away, but let's see. Uh, I would say big picture, it is about what I call rom-com syndrome, Mm -hmm. uh, which is this affectation or, or worldview that a lot of people my age have who were raised on you know we've been bombarded with rom-com imagery <laughs> since when harry met sally come out all we're told is like you know you're going to meet somebody it's going to be amazing you're going to fall in love it's going to be perfect forever and all you have to do is find the one um and so it's about a guy in his mid-20s who's kind of followed the pop culture model of acquiring what like movies tell you you need to be happy like mm-hmm. he's got a high-paying job he's living in new york city in greenwich village greatest city in the world Uh, He has a beautiful girlfriend who he's been with for several years and he's almost trying to like one plus one plus one equals three kind of get his way to happiness and it's really not working for them. And when the book starts, he's just lost uh, his best friend who's died died from a drug overdose. And so we kind of find him at that lowest point in his life uh and he's completely desperate for some kind of happiness or or something to hold on to and he meets a number of women but the important ones are amanda who he's with at the beginning of the book and zoe who he meets early on in the book and he's kind of grappling with this question of like well i've met this woman she seems perfect or she seems like the one she seems like she could fulfill all these pop culture cliches is this real Hmm. or am i just falling in love with the narrative am i falling in love with the idea of who this woman is am i in love with the idea of love like what am i ignoring red flags so that this all falls into place and he kind of grapples with that while doing you know a lot of drugs and drinking a lot and going out with friends and kind of exploring the new york nightlife and ultimately I'm, i won't i won't say how it ends but i, I like to think Ultimately, it's very open to interpretation. If you're somebody who believes in love, you will read it and feel like it's a romantic book. And that's why it's marketed as a romance novel. And if you're a cynic, you can read it and say, well, this guy is making some bad decisions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I see. And what was the inspiration behind it? Why did you want to do that? Was it simply because you wanted to kind of write something that felt more true? Because you said you grew up on the rom-com.
1: Yeah, I, I... I am someone who I think can be very romantic about the idea of, of romance and true love and all that stuff. And I, I love the idea Uh, a lot of, I love a lot of romantic comedies and I like the ideas behind it. I think my goal with it was to show that you can write something that is literary, that it references Hamlet, that discuss like is grappling with these, these important, questions about the meaning of life and, and the structure of life and the narrative of life and how we find the people that we're going to choose to spend time with. And also be a book about getting stoned with your friends and getting drunk with <laughs> your friends and going out and having ridiculous things where you pass out during casual sex with people that you barely know. I, I, I wanted to show that just because something is written in a literary way, it can't still be dirty and real. Uh, I guess substance is a good way to put it. Like A lot of the characters we see in rom-coms they're like pg-13 rated movies so they're pg-13 rated characters they don't Mm. curse we we don't see you know the awkward one night stand that makes them realize they're ready for a deeper commitment we don't see these these real moments of struggle that i think most people who are adults and dating would be like you know it's not really just a, a fairy tale romance out there where everything proceeds magically and slowly and Uh, There's no, you're not talking to anybody else while you're falling in love with this person who you've known for two weeks. Like it, it's blurry. And yeah, I wanted to kind of offer something that was a little different than most of what is out there.
0: Right. And also the rom-coms, they, they tend to uh, make the story very neat. I mean, after all, they only have two hours to tell the story and it's got to wrap up pretty quick and that's not real life.
1: That's not real life. and even as the rom-com genre has expanded, you're very right. Like it started with movies, but now we see rom-coms that take place over the course of a whole season of television or five seasons of television. Uh, We see whole book series devoted to them. And still the tendency is always to push this idea of like you find that person and then you have your sweet monogamous love story and, and you're together forever. And that's what makes it happy. And that's what makes it good. And in my opinion, most of them stop at like the part where it gets the most interesting. They're like, oh, you're coupled up. You're married. Everything's good now. Right. I don't know about you. Most of the married couples I know, like their story just starts when they got married. Like after that is when they really start getting to know each other and really start figuring out like, oh my goodness, this is a whole other person I've agreed to spend the next 50 years with. I think that (laughs) stuff, that nuance is like way more interesting. I mean, I love the idea of love forever, but love forever on the day-to-day basis it looks a lot different than just holding hands and walking off into the sunset and then fading away uh, as, the, as the and credits swell.
0: Right now, I've, I've been married for 18 years. This this year, got three well, kids. Congratulations,
1: that is thank very you. impressive.
0: Thank, thank you. But you know, my wife and I always talk about it. You know, we always, even now, we we always say marriage is fragile. You know, marriage could always, and you gotta have to treat it as such. You know, it's it's something that can in a day can can uh, take a, a nasty turn, you know, and you got to have to be mindful of that and also mindful of the fact that you're two individuals that are evolving and sometimes you're you're not changing in the same ways. So, in a way, you are getting to know each other over and over again because you're also changing throughout time, you know, and, and coming up with different perspectives and so forth. So, I, I think For it's great sure. that... You wanted to write something uh, deeper to, to reflect that. But you're right uh, that a lot of times, uh, you, know, you know, what do you know when you're dating, right? <laughs> after, <laughs> after you're married for some time, you know.
1: That's when the pretense drops. Right, uh, right. <laughs> well, I love what you said that you're growing and changing. And you're basically a different person than you were, I'm sure, 18 years ago. And like, imagine how crazy you would look at me if I was like, uh, so in 20 years, do you want to have steak for dinner <laughs> on on Tuesday, like May 14th, or do you want to have salmon? you'd be like, well, how the hell am I going to know what I'm going to want 20 years from now? <laughs> right. And yet you've committed that whether you're eating the steak or you're eating the salmon, you're going to be eating it with your wife, right? Uh, who could be a completely different person in 20 years. And it's something beautiful to that that I think is underexplored in media. And maybe that's because each marriage is so unique or whatever that it's harder to find those universal truths, whereas most marriages have like... The how we story of how we met and the story of how our engagement party went and how our marriage went or whatever, but I don't know. I like the stuff that takes genre expectations we've seen and like deepens them or complicates them in some way. Uh, And I would like to think that Love from Amanda to Zoe kind of does that with the rom com genre. And it's also like it's the advantage of writing a book over a film. Like film kind of, ha- like you said, it has two hours to do it. So you kind of have to fall back on certain things. Whereas Love from Amanda, Zoe, or in all novels, like really takes you inside the minds of these people. And it's easier to kind of complicate ideas when you're literally just writing down someone's thoughts. Absolutely. Uh, so how did you and your wife meet?
0: If, you, how don't, did we if meet? you don't mind my asking. No, no, it's fine. No, we actually met in uh, church. We were volunteering to help out with uh, sort of the teenage... Group, we were like, yeah. So, we were spending a a lot of time supposedly trying to get things together for our Friday night <laughs> thing. But it turns out to be a great way to meet somebody, you know, and spend a lot of time <laughs> with them. So, yeah, that's where we met.
1: Oh, well, that's great. And see, if this was a if this was a film about your your meeting, and you, we were going to tell a faith based story, a church story, I'm sure it would be a very chaste. Uh, a very chaste whole storyline, and maybe it would build up to one kiss at the very end of the thing. Now, obviously, you don't have to answer this, but I'm going to guess in real life it didn't quite go like that.
0: No, no. There's uh, breakups involved, several breakups. It's, you know, it was a little messy for a few years.
1: There you go. And that doesn't make it any less like true love or whatever than, than movies want to sell you. It's, it's real. And I, I just always will go with the thing that feels unique and real over the thing that feels Hallmark. Not that Hallmark doesn't make great, great stuff. Just that they kind of summarize the genre I'm trying to deepen, I suppose. Right.
0: And, you know, I think to the the rom-com idea, it has this, it's almost like an Americanized view of love. And and you can give me your thoughts on this, right? But I always love hearing, like, I don't know if you're aware of, like, the studies where they do, like, arranged marriages, versus more the American way, you know, you meet somebody, date somebody. And after a while you get married versus maybe in the East where their parents picked out their spouses for them. And then they do these studies where in like the first five years of each marriage, the the Western style, those couples are more happy. But after 25 years, it's it's different and it kind of levels out. So, in other words, like there's still something that just the the sheer course of time of a relationship things sort of even out so like the americanized views you know there's a lot of excitement in the beginning of the marriage that people just don't have in the arranged marriages you know if anything they have more trepidations like who is this person that i have to get married to you know
1: yeah, for sure. Well, did you know they actually there are arranged marriages that happen in the US too. that a lot of like Eastern immigrants that have come here, like they'll set up marriages for their kids or whatever. But I think it comes down to in the West. Like in the the arranged marriage is always, to my understanding, one of practicality, you know, it's like, well, they come from a similar family, we want similar things. Mm-hmm. So there's a good chance that long term you guys will be compatible. Whereas in the West, it's all about those sparks. He walked into the room. I saw him noticing me. I noticed him. Our eyes met. And in that moment, we Mm -hmm. knew. And I'm sorry. That's just limerence. That's just lust. That's just that initial spark of chemistry. And betting that that, that never is going to last for 20 years, like... Not to say that those relationships that start that way can't be successful. It's just it has to transition from that lust, from that butterflies in the stomach feeling every time they walk in the room to something where it is deeper. And it is based on wanting similar things and and having shared values and all that. And there's just no there's zero correlation between who you have those sparks with and who you're going to have that same long term vision on. So that would make sense why at first you're young, everything feels great, you're you're newlyweds, it's amazing. And then after five or 10 years, you're like, oh yeah, all that stuff that I was ignoring because the sparks and the chemistry were so amazing, they're (laughs) actually kind of really annoying now and you've put on like 10 pounds and you don't go to the gym nearly as much. And frankly, you used to buy me flowers, why don't you buy me flowers anymore, like what happened to that? Um,
0: and that doesn't take five to 10 years, by the way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that can take much. I picked five years because you said the study were I was <laughs> right, right, five right. years, but that can be very quick.
0: <laughs> right. Interesting. Well, let's talk about your uh, second book. Now, is that one already out in the world or it's not out? So you're working on the second book right now.
1: Uh, well, it's done. It's been done for quite some time. I had an offer to publish it, but I passed on it because if I learned anything from my first go around publishing a book, like it matters who publishes it and it matters how much they're going to put into marketing it and releasing it. And so love from Amanda to Zoe, I wrote because I was like, I was 18. I had been writing for creatively for six months, maybe. And I was like, can I write a novel? And I spent three months thinking about this character and then I got it all out and I sharpened it and it came out when I was 23, but it was very much like, I am writing this because this is the one novel I know I have in me. And mm. then my second book, you know, I wanted to be more ambitious. I wanted. To, I went from writing a book for myself to thinking like, what is a book I can write that will kind of maybe occupy a place in the zeitgeist one day. So I, I am, right now I'm looking for a publisher that believes in it to the extent that I believe in it And the way I came up with the idea, it's called Just a Dream, was I was thinking about like how in each of like the kind of the classic areas of fiction, there is like one seminal or two seminal series that we look at as like everything else is kind of below those or like in conversation with those. And I'll use an example like Harry Potter basically Mm -hmm. conquered the block for wizard fiction. If you're writing wizard fiction now, everyone is comparing you to Harry Potter. Harry Potter is that market yeah um star wars or star trek is the same way for space exploration exploration if you're writing a book set there or you're writing a series set there people are going to compare it to those uh lord of the rings is another great example like if you're re- writing something that's set in that medieval middle earthy feeling uh with hobgoblins and i'm gonna but- butcher all this i haven't read lord of the rings but with all that <laughs> stuff people are gonna compare you to lord of the rings and i was like what is the one area that we have that doesn't have kind of their seminal series. And I came up with dreams. There is no, we've all seen the cheesy stuff where like, you know, somebody it's a TV show and at the end it was real. It's just a dream. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like all of the lore and fiction and stuff that we've written about it and all, everything people knows about dreams and sleeping, sleeping. And we still know so little about why we sleep or what actually is happening when you sleep. And so I set out to come up with something in the same vein, young adulty, that would appeal to people and kind of have a magical feeling to it, but be set in a world where the only difference is that you can go into people's dreams. And it's not like you can go into anyone's dream. Basically, it's set in a world where overpopulation is choking the earth, which I think is a reasonable forecast for where we might be heading. Right. Um, And the government announces that it has partnered with this company, Solucio Incorporated, uh, to make the company's dreamscapes available to everyone. Now, a dreamscape is a machine that you plug into and it creates a personalized utopia for you. Basically, you go to sleep and it's like the best dream you've ever had in your life. And you just Mm. live in that dream for the rest of your life. And it's thought to be a way to lower population. We then cut, that's the prologue. We then go 10 years later and all of a sudden the real world is crumbling. Because if you can choose between struggling every day to make it in this world, or just press a button and immediately have your own personalized utopia, which to be clear is not just like you wake up on a desert island and everything's amazing and you have servants and everything, because humans need a little bit more than just like constant happiness. They need that feeling of struggle. Absolutely. Um, and achieving goals. So like some people press the button and they wake up and they're John Lennon. Some people press the button and they wake up and they're a Jedi Knight and they're in a star Wars universe and it feels real. And they think that's their life. Some people press the button and it feels like their real life just ki- keeps on going and they don't remember pressing the button, but all of a sudden they're getting that promotion at work. Their, their wife is, is more into them than she's ever been before. <laughs> their annoying. Their annoying friend moves out of town. Like, for some people, it's minor tweaks. For some people, it's whatever the, the machine just knows. And it's a bit of a, you know, just a fictionary literary thing where it's like, I basically want to be able to ask people, like, if you were in this world, and I'll ask you, if somebody came to you and they said, push this button, and the rest of your life will be better than the best dream you've ever had. And the only catch is that it's not this reality. It's your own reality. Would, would you push the button?
0: I would not. No.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, let me ask why wouldn't you push the button?
0: Well, I just, I don't like the idea of, I like the idea of the story, but I don't like mm-hmm. the idea of me just completely unconscious living like a fake reality. You know, it's it's kind of like the Matrix red pill, blue pill thing. It's do a lot want, like that. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to be unconscious while everything is just normal or do you want to be fully awake even though being fully awake means more... Um, struggle, as as you say. So I, I choose fully awake.
1: <laughs> well, I'm happy to hear that
0: because <laughs> a pessimistic
1: view of humanity would theorize that a good many number of us, uh, perhaps billions of us, would choose the easy <laughs> route of pushing the button. Uh, but our main character, our hero, Charlie Ford, grapples with it. He's about to turn 16, and in the book, you can't pr- you can't plug in until you've turned 16. Uh, it's considered you know it's it's not legal to plug children in um, and so all of his classmates are hitting their 16th birthday and a lot of them are just immediately saying adios and going off into their own world and he kind of the whole book is grappling with well why am i fighting for any of these things uh, if i could just plug in and it would all feel great and the way we kind of anchor him to the real world is his mother is alcoholic uh, and has been an alcoholic ever since his father disappeared 10 years earlier around the time of the launch of the Solucio and government's partnership if you want to read into that i'm not going to give away too much and he has a little sister who is eight um i realize i've realized i've done a bad job introducing this whole thing but anyways not at all in the book so uh, in the book there are these people called dream catchers and what okay. dream catchers do, they go into the, they, they are like the troubleshooters of the, the dreamscapes. Uh, so most of the people they plug into these machines, they work perfectly forever. Some of them, though, almost wake up or come close to waking up if things in their simulated reality aren't jiving. And the dream catchers go into their dreams and they'll play like a crucial role. So if somebody's in a Star Wars fantasy, they might go in and be the Jedi next to them and make sure something goes the way it needs to. Or they might be that guy, they might be the angel investor who comes to rescue your company. They might be the drummer who joins your band and gives you your big break all of a sudden because his uncle's a record executive. Um, So they're kind of hopping through all these different like pop culture references and allegories um, and just different people's fantasies and they're troubleshooting it all. And Charlie, our 15-year-old protagonist, goes to this prestigious school called the Academy of Nightmares and Dreams where you learn to be a dream catcher. It's kind of like, it's similar to Harry Potter in that way of like the the kid going off to the, the magical school, mm-hmm. it kind of gives us an inroad into exploring the world. And then also lets us jump through all these different pop culture things. Um, and it's like, so I use that thought experiment to introduce the book. And then most of the book is focused on his journey and I don't want to give away too much of the plot or what he finds out because uh i don't know i just think it I, I i get into this thing with my book where i start talking about it and i just want to tell people the whole thing
0: <laughs> no i mean and it, then it i'm sounds, like i
1: shouldn't do that
0: <laughs> <laughs> no it sounds fascinating i mean it reminds me it sort of sounds like a hybrid of the matrix inception and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind the way they were go i don't know if you've seen that but uh
1: oh absolutely
0: yeah you know how they're going in trying to erase the memory so it there's a lot of it that uh That reminds me of uh, those three things put together. So it sounds like totally something I'd be into for sure.
1: (laughs) Those first two that you brought up, the Matrix and the Inception, that's how I pitch it a lot of times to agents or publishers. I'm like, it's kind of like the Inception meets the Matrix. And they're kind of like, why are you giving me movie comps for a book? And I'm like, because I haven't read a book that does stuff like this. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm just referencing the thing that is combining these concepts. Like, if you're sitting there thinking nobody's done this before, well, gee, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, that, I have told so many people about this book over the years because they find out I have one book out and they want to hear what else I've talked about. And most people have the reaction you've had where they're like, Wow. I would read that, and like you're obviously very into books. Even I have friends who like barely read or never read, and I talk about it, and they're like, "Wow, you know, if that was a book, I think I'd actually go read it." <laughs> and I'm like that. I'm like, "All right, I was right. I was right to pass on that offer from the company that doesn't want to take it wide. Like, uh, you know, I'll find somebody who believes in it as much as I do, and maybe it's not for a year or three years or whatever, but that's better than just putting it out and just to, just to put it out. I, I would, I think.
0: And it it's such an a cool idea that it keeps getting explored in different iterations you know like the truman show is very much like like the matrix when you think about it you know it's always this do you choose real reality over a simulation you know that that spielberg movie where they go into like the video games i forgot the name of it, it came out a few years ago but like the kids are like it's such a virtual reality that that they're like they're like in the games almost
1: it's not Tron you're talking
0: no, about. No, no, yeah, not that's Tron. Like Spielberg. No, this um, is a Spielberg movie. I I I believe um I'll have to look it up. Avatar is another one, you know, where the the consciousness is transferred from the human mind to the alien mind going into the alien world. Did you see Avatar?
1: Yes, I did. Absolutely. No, and I'm also just nodding at the idea that yeah, this idea of consciousness is in, and is really being explored a lot and uh, it's also the idea of like objective reality. Like what is the necessity of objective reality to be happy? Um, and like, I would argue there's no real such thing as objective reality. We have shared reality that we have certain things we all agree to be true. And we all agree to call certain things blue and certain things green. And, but you know, everything is just perception. Like our people, sometimes people like to say the thing where they're like, Oh, the universe is just a simulation. And yeah. it doesn't that just blow your mind. And I'm right. like, okay, but what does that change? Like, right. all you're saying is that everything feels real. And no matter how, even even if I knew for a fact it was a simulation, if I have no way out of the simulation, you're just saying I live in a simulation that's supposed to change my life. Pain still feels like pain. Pleasure still feels like right. pleasure. The only thing that gives any of this meaning or sense is our own perception. It's the, it's the meaning we layer on top of it. So... It's the kind of thing where it's like, I, like you, feel if somebody offered me this button, I could not bring myself to push it, even though intellectually I know, well, if I just pushed it real quick, all of a sudden, I would have no memory of pushing it, and then everything would just get better and better, and I would think <laughs> it was this exact same reality, uh, but it's that moment where you give up that I don't think I'd be able to to, to accept, uh, but everybody else, I feel like, you know, you just you take like five shots, and then you're just like, oh, fuck it, and you push the button. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take the opportunity to let you know about a brand new resource I recently published. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I've created an ebook called Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro that walks you through all the little details of producing and launching your own show. So for less than $5, you can own this resource by visiting storykingbooks.com or amazon.com. Those links will be in the show notes. And now back to today's episode. Well you said something interesting. You said the purpose of objective reality is to be happy. And I heard a quote just a couple of days ago. I'm trying to think who said it, but basically the the idea was if you had everything perfect, we'd want to destroy it just so we'd have something to live for, to to fix it or whatever. And I thought that was that was an interesting thing because if you if you get everything you want, are you really truly happy? And it's kind of like, you've got to be striving for something no matter what, even if you, you know, it's, it's like, okay, well, that, that's that thing that I always wanted, but yet there's something else, you know, and, and you know what I mean? Absolutely. That's
1: one of the fundamental realizations of the company in the book that's designed the Machines is that people do not want to be handed paradise. People want a consistent series of achievable goals where everything feels like I have to work really hard to get this thing. I got it okay, celebration. What's next? I have to work really hard to get this next thing that seems bigger and better than the thing before. And people just want to be on this constant escalator <laughs> or stepping right. stone to the next thing. And it's, it's how our brains are wired. It's how we evolved. We evolved to constantly be seeking out higher ground, more food sources, more water, more people to procreate with, more safety for our tribe. And the people that got happy and then complacent are the ones who did not live on in the the human race (laughs) as we evolved. Like, so that's why it's interesting. Like the constitution guarantees life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And obviously we can talk about why they, well, we're not going to talk about how they left out property for the whole slavery reason, but the pursuit of happiness is what it guarantees, not happiness, because happiness is ephemeral. It's fleeting. Like, you can have the happiest day of your life. And then the next day you wake up, and you're not going to be quite as happy. There's just no, there's no way for it to continue. It's not a, it's not a consistent thing. It just has to go away. Otherwise, what? like if you felt happy all the time, it would kind of like just being stoned on heroin constantly. Right. Like the, <laughs> it's why drug addicts need bigger and bigger hits. It's like you need, you need the contrast of the lows and the highs for either to feel any, to, to feel real at all.
0: Right. It's like a, uh... Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning, you know, he was a psychologist and uh, that was his thing. People derive meaning in their lives, you know, like they have to, it's not about happiness, it's about meaning that people are after. So, you know, people have different perspectives of what drives the unconscious, but that always resonated as as true for me, so.
1: Uh, Well, I think it's the kind of thing where you have to think, you have to, uh, Walt Whitman has this quote, uh, I am large, I contain multitudes. And it's Mm. like the quote that has stuck with me over the years, because I think like, if you're an atheist like me, you believe to some extent that life is meaningless. Like there Mm. is no objective meaning. We weren't put here for some purpose. We're not here to do anything. And a lot of religious people that I've spoken to about this, they'll say life is meaningless. That sounds horrifying. How do you find any value in life? How do you find happiness? And I'm like, no, no, no. It's the exact opposite. Life is meaningless. I don't have to answer to someone else's version of what I'm supposed to do. My life has meaning where I ascribe meaning to it. So in some sense, life is meaningless. On one hand, I can believe that fully, but then also believe that my life and other people's lives have great meaning that we have put into our lives. We imbue our own lives with meaning and it can mean whatever we want it to be. Like If I decide that I want to spend my whole life writing books and making films and just making all kinds of weird art and, and that's what makes me feel like I've had a meaningful life, that that's allowed and if somebody else feels like they want to spend their life conquering you know businesses and 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 growing some kind of financial empire and that's what gives their lives meaning that's okay too You know, don't crush poor people and all that. You probably shouldn't do that. But uh, if you're ethical while you're doing it, that's fine, I suppose. And if someone else thinks what gives their life meaning is having a small family in in rural Kansas and and raising livestock on a farm and that's what makes their life feel meaningful, that's okay too. It's whatever we put into it. And it's not something where it's ordained or handed down. Like, this is the meaning of life. This is what you have to do now. Right. Um, So in other words, you don't believe in
0: intrinsic meaning, but- you believe in the meaning that you can create for your own life, basically.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think if we all vanished, if the earth blew up it, like t- five seconds from now, there's no great scorecard keeper who would all of a sudden be like, damn, we just lost all this meaning. Um, <laughs> like the universe is so huge. There would be uh, on the grand scheme of things, you're not affecting anything, whether this one planet is here or not it just depends on what level you're looking at it. So if you, when you zoom that far out to a universal level, yeah, I don't think there's intrinsic meaning, but obviously all of these people, everyone in this world means something to somebody else and hopefully has given some kind of meaning to their own life. Gotcha. Uh, I think it's freeing to think of it that way instead of be like, well, if I do all of these things, I get into heaven. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you're religious. (laughs) Obviously, you reference meeting at church. I hope this is not offending you in any way,
0: but it takes a lot um, to offend me. Don't even don't even worry about it. (laughs) 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 I like I like deep discussions. I like talking to people that think differently than me. So that's uh, one of the things that drives me for sure. So absolutely, I
1: do too.
0: Awesome. Now, let me ask you, just switching gears a little bit, I didn't put this in my uh, notes here, but I want to ask you, when you're creating characters, and I don't want to get you in mm-hmm. trouble, but are you thinking about real people when you're, when you're creating characters? Or not really? Are they just hodgepodge's of just characteristics of people?
1: I would say I am thinking of real relationships between characters. So a good example is in my second book, the main character's relationship with his little sister in a lot of ways, echoes sentiments I have about my own little sister, um, who's much younger than me. And so those feelings are what I am like copying, but the characters themselves, it's not like the main character's me and the little sister's his little sister. From there, they're just completely fictionalized. A lot a lot. So a lot of people at NYU with me when they read my my first book about a, a Jewish guy from Boston who's gone mm-hmm. to NYU, uh, which describes me to a T. They'd read it and they go, "So which one am I? Right. So <laughs> so who, Which which of these male friends am I?" And I would tell them like, "You're none of them." Like I don't deny that me and you have gone out to bars and gotten drunk like these characters have together, but I am not trying to take people and put them in books. I, I just think somebody might say something that ends up in a book, although I don't honestly think I've ever actually done that. It's more like the experiences of my life like, have shaped my ideas of what real people look and sound like, but I, I'm not one of those writers who's like, secretly like, just getting back at all the people in their life, by like, I'm going to make you so stupid and angry in my book, everyone's <laughs> right. going to realize you're the most disliked character. <laughs> you'll be immortalized as a dick. (laughs) Um, No, I'm not doing any of that. I just like, it's not like the women he he dates in the, in, in love from Amanda Zoe or any of the women I've dated to me. That's, that's more limiting to me than it is inspiring. Like I, I'm more interested in emotions and thoughts than I am. Like just recreating stories from my life. Like I was more interested on like with Zach, the the main character in love from Amanda Zoe. I was like, what kind of emotional journey can I take this guy on? And like, what kind of thoughts can run through his head and how do these other characters fit into that while still giving them their own arcs? And most people in real life, if you know them over the course of three months, like they don't really have an arc or or nine months. They don't really have a narrative arc. You know, they're just like, I was at NYU, my friends, they were students at NYU. They didn't have, you know, some problem they were grappling with that they were going to go through some changes and have to like, grow some emotional fortitude to like really be the better version of themselves that they could be. They were just having a freshman year. Like, um, so when writers do that, I'm always like, that just seems so hard. If you're just going to take things from real life and make them into your life. Like you just have to have like a very, very interesting life all the time. Like I, I, I like if I just make shit up and make people up, like they can have all these epiphanies and character development that most people aren't just having on a daily basis.
0: True. Let's talk about your film, A More Perfect Union. I I did watch the three minute trailer of it. It looked pretty intense. And I remember that was one of the things that interested me when you first reached out for the show that it had something to do with COVID. And I I just remember thinking, like, man, that's fast that this dude created like a film about COVID. Like, we're like still in the middle of it. And it was fairly early on, right?
1: Oh, it was very, very (laughs) early on. Like, I would say. just take you through the timeline a little bit in february of 2020 i was sitting there contract offer in hand to have my first like big leading role in a hollywood movie wow and march of 2020 when this lockdown comes down the producer gets in touch with me and is basically like you know i can tell you this thing's been postponed but just with where the money people are at and with some other factors like some of your co-stars and certain ages or whatever He's like, this is never, this is not going to happen in this current formulation. He is still working on it as a TV series, and who knows down the line anything's possible. But basically, it went from like, oh, this is going to start in a few months to, oh, this is gone. At the same time, I was like all of us becoming a, an amateur epidemiologist and reading all the science, <laughs> and basically, like, okay, we're in lockdown. They say it's going to be two weeks. Is that real? Is that really how long it's going to be? And I looked at all the stuff and like, I took what I knew about America and America's ability, Americans ability to like take personal responsibility for the good of the collective. And I was like, we're going to be in lockdown until there's a vaccine. Yeah. Like, what are, what are they talking about? Like, this is only going to be two weeks. Like this thing is just spreading. It's probably been spreading for months now. How is it going to be two weeks? And then all of a sudden it's going to be safe to do all these things. When at, I don't know if you're like at that time they were saying like, uh, you can get it from surfaces. You can get, you can get it, you know, somebody sure. can hand you an apple and all of a sudden you've got it. Like we thought it was the most contagious thing that had ever come out. And in Hollywood and in LA at the time, a lot of my actor friends were started putting out like, I don't know if you saw any of these, but they'd be like little skits people shot at their own house. And it was, it's just like a one minute, like funny thing or like a 30 second thing for Instagram. And they're just like all very simple concept stuff. And basically it's like, look, I made this in my house during lockdown. Yeah. Kind of stuff. I remember. And I was like, a year from now, nobody is going to want to watch those. Nobody is going to, because people are going to start making content outside of their house again. And like all of them, as creative as they were, and a lot of talented people made them, but you're just so restricted by being the only person in your house that there's a limit. There's a very, very low limit to what you can actually really do. And so I said to my partner, I was like, can we do something bigger? Can we be more ambitious? Could we maybe make... I was. I said, you know, I think we're going to be in lockdown for an entire year. I think together you and I could make a short film, but we we had just made a short film out of lockdown that is still going to festivals. And, and I was like, I don't want to just, you know, stay at the same level. It was the same way with my first or the second book. I want to do something bigger. And I said to her, like, I think between me and you, like we could write a film and, and act in a film and make this whole thing while we're in lockdown. And if nothing else, it might end up terrible, but at least it'll get us through this year and blaze uh blaze hall just to get her full name uh, to her credit like she was all for it she was like yeah let's let's take on this challenge some a lot of people told us you guys are crazy for doing this this is an insane amount of work like how do you possibly think you're going to make this happen uh we were like well we have a lot of time and (laughs) (laughs) a lot a lot of passion and energy for this project and i also saw it as a bit of an opportunity because so the, the plot line of our film revolves around an NSA whistleblower who I play, who is currently on trial for stealing documents from the NSA. And he is forced to isolate from his wife, who's a former medical student, who's caring for their, their three-year-old daughter. Uh, as lo- It's set during the March 2020 lockdown. So it's set right as everything's shutting down and his trial gets shut down. But his trial throughout the film continues over Skype. And if I had put that into a script, in November of 2019, everybody would have looked at me like I was absolutely insane. They would have said, what are you doing? I don't care how low budget your film is. He can't have a trial over Skype. That's not a thing that happens in the world. But for the first time, I could shoot a trial scene on this very couch that I'm sitting on. And instead of people saying, well, they just had no money to rent an actual courtroom or, or fill the room with extras, people would say, oh, well, that's real that was really happening in March of 2020 and it's still happening now. Like trials are being conducted over zoom the same way you and I yeah. are having this conversation, they're having trials. And so I saw it as like an opportunity. And I also thought somebody is going to make the movie. Like nobody's going to want to watch 15 COVID films about COVID, <laughs> but there's going to be one
0: right. that
1: people are like, when, you, when 20 years from now, Uh, you said you have three kids when your kids are a little older, I don't know how well they're going to remember this or how young some of them are, but they're like, what was it like when everything was just getting shut down all of a sudden, and you didn't know how contagious this was or where you could get this disease from. And our hope is that people can watch a more perfect union and kind of get a sense both of what it was like during those two weeks. And also some of the issues that made this disease, this pandemic so bad in America, why so many more people died than they needed to in a country that is super rich but does not have universal health care and we touch on some other stuff like ending mass surveillance and that's less covid related but kind of ties into the whole Mm. thing with america and how america is run and who runs america and how the people living in the richest country in the world actually don't have a lot of the rights and opportunities that you would expect if all you knew about them were that they lived in the richest country in the world.
0: Right. So the film is almost like a time capsule too for uh, the time we're living in to try to capture the whole vibe of everything and going on in the country as well as you have this couple. So it's like an individual's lives as well.
1: Yeah, the buzzword, we, the, buzz, the phrase I love using is we're trying to tell a macro story through a micro lens. So like mm-hmm. this one family is our window into this crisis that the whole country and the whole world went through. It is at its core, a love story. It's a Hollywood movie. I'm not going to lie. Like it's a love story, but it was a chance to go. I I knew nobody's going to want to watch a film that is just two people in their apartments arguing about their relationship past. If this film doesn't touch on more universal themes and our world needs to feel bigger. And I think we I don't know. You said you like the promo where we have about seven more days to go. We're trying to bring in some big names to have some cameos to really get us the kind of audience that we're hoping for. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to add, the it's a love story, but it is a polyamorous love story. So it is a little more complicated than your usual Hollywood love triangle. Uh, there are all the possibilities are on the table right. uh, and the polyamory is a big driving factor in that. And I was saying to blaze the other day, like it got us through, you know, we have, we're not done with it. There's still work to be done, but it got us from March of 2020, a very, very dark time to may of 2021. The pandemic's not over, but I don't know about you. I'm vaccinated. Uh, it's starting to feel like things are opening up again and it's not crazy for that to be happening. Um, Uh, and so in a lot of ways, I, look, I still think, I think the film is going to be successful. I think a lot of people are going to watch it and like it and all that good stuff. But at its core of art just being something to help me and my partner survive the pandemic, uh, it was that.
0: Absolutely. No, it, it's, it sounds interesting. So it's done, but but it's not. Well, you said it's not done. You're trying to get mm-hmm. more people in it. I got gotcha. you.
1: We have a few more days. of we have, we have about seven more days of filming to do. Uh, we've been working under nonprofit fiscal sponsorship from this company, Media Alliance, uh, who sued the NSA after the Snowden revelations in, mm. in 2013 and 2014. And so we shot the first half basically taking tax deductible contributions from friends and family and strangers. And now, uh, for this latter half, we're trying to bring in a, a larger production company or a larger equity investor so that we can go after some of this name talent to fill some of these like cameo roles that we have that might appear in like Skype calls or they'll have flashback scenes where they're in person. Because ultimately like we want this to be a film that gets seen by a lot of people. And the way you do that is you get people that they've already, people have already heard of to start to cameo in it. Um, and that just opens all the doors. And so we've, we've been using that video that you've seen to to set up meetings with different companies and investors and, uh, kicking around all that stuff for the past few months, and you know, it's uh, it. We expect it to be done done at the end of September, mm. uh, all production, and then fully open sometime early 2022. And now that theaters can open again, we we really like we we're expecting it to be nationwide in theaters and potentially internationally, and. That's really cool because when we were writing it, we were like, there's a chance the world never opens again at all and people <laughs> just see this watching on their laptop screen and <laughs> we're still in isolation three years from now.
0: Right. Um, so, do you consider yourself primarily a writer over a filmmaker? Or do you like one art more than the other?
1: I, I would not say I consider myself more one or the other. I My day-to-day is mostly spent acting. Um, acting is the one that requires the most day-to-day of like, auditioning and auditioning and auditioning and auditioning, whereas writing is a lot of bursts of very intense creative periods, followed by a lot of sending emails and waiting. So like my first book, I wrote the first draft over spring break my freshman year, six days of just 10,000 words a day. It was blissful. It was heavenly. It was just a pure creative experience. It felt amazing. And then I spent a few months editing and tweaking. And then after that, I spent like three years emailing agents and emailing publishers and sending them different variations of a query letter, trying to get people to read it. And a lot of times people not even getting to the point where they actually read the book and just reading your 200 word query letter and saying, sorry, this isn't for me. And so during that time, I could have written like five more books, but it's just the publishing industry moves so slowly, like there's not much, there's not much sense in doing it that way. So I kind of see it like Acting is like my day job in a way, and writing is like the thing that I'm, I would do. I would write whether I ever made a cent or not, and acting is kind of, as, as crazy as it sounds, like acting is the more consistent income and the more just like, I do this, it's still creative, it's still art, but, you know, I act in commercials where I sell beard grooming products. Like, they're, <laughs> they're not, it's not just the pure creative doing whatever I want thing that writing right. is. Um, so I probably spend more time as a filmmaker, but I I love them both. And improv too, which is right in there with both of them and kind of feeds both of them. Improv is how I got into acting and improv is something I am able to do. like It's professional and all that, but it's mainly done for the bliss of creating it and doing it. So all three, I would say. I, I don't like to give any more love to I, any of them.
0: I gotcha. Now... You run this improv group, and you said you said you're in L.A. I'm in L- yeah L.A. So L.A. has been particularly closed, right, yeah. <laughs> compared to a lot of the other. I'm in New York, New York City. Oh,
1: okay, all right.
0: Um, what what part of New York are you in? I'm in Queens, Queens, New oh, okay. York. Okay, cool. So, are you, have you been doing it like via Zoom and everything, the improv, or do you have a place where you get together, or
1: well, so we used to, we started in Pasadena when I lived in Pasadena and we met there. And then when lockdown started, we stopped. Uh, and it was right. just me and my partner did a couple, two prop shows. And it's only in the past few weeks that we've been, we've started meeting in person again, because we have a group now of about four or five people. We're all vaccinated. So it's CDC approved. <laughs> and I, I know a lot of comedy places pivoted to Zoom comedy, but It really doesn't work for improv. I mean, I don't know if you've ever done improv, but eye contact is the core. Eye contact with your scene partner is absolutely essential. The whole idea is like you and me are making something up on the spot and to make it not something where it's like, I'm playing with my ball and then I pass you the ball and you play with the ball and something where we're actually passing the creative ball back and forth and building something together. We need to be able to look each other in the eye and zoom. You can't like, I can look at the camera and if you're looking at your screen, it might feel like I'm looking in your eyes, but I am just looking at a camera. I'm not looking Mm. at your eyes. So (laughs) I just like when the lockdown started, I was like, I don't really see the point of improvising this way. I don't think it will be entertaining to watch and I don't think we'll really grow as improvisers doing it this way. So one of the things I really missed in lockdown was my improv group, The Pass Donuts, and doing our live stream every week. And I'm super happy now <laughs> that we're doing it again. It's one of the things like I, why when I say like, yeah, we made it through the pandemic, even though I know it's not over, I know there's a long way to go. Like, It's safe now to meet with vaccinated people and that feels really really good right yeah we did not do zoom improv
0: gotcha (laughs) no i I would imagine that uh, i've never done improv but i would imagine you need at least like that live energy for it to really function
1: yeah for sure like so we we do live stream our own shows like we perform at theaters around here but we'll also live stream a show every week when we meet and even that is like not quite the purest improv experience because have you, you've been to improv shows, I would imagine. I don't know. Have you ever gone to UCB in New York? or where, where I, I haven't. In New York? I haven't. No. Okay. Well, I, I would say check it out. Like it, it is very fun when there's like a certain energy in the room, when people are just making stuff up on the spot and it's actually hitting for you and it's actually funny. And it's hard to recreate that with a live stream, but at least we feel like, well, if we're in the room and they can watch us and see the energy that we have and the fun that we're having, we hope and people have said, some, for some people, they say it translates, other people don't like it as much as in person. Without two people in the same room, at least, and hopefully four or five or six, like just, you just don't get that same liveliness, that same spontaneous off-the-cuff feeling um, that is really, really fun to have and and, and create, uh, especially when you do it with the same group of people all the time. And so you really get to know each other and can do go more and more out there and I like to be wacky and wild. I I would make voices and and do funny accents and and stupid characters, even if there was no one around. So (laughs) all these people make me seem a little bit more sane for doing it.
0: Nice. Did I read correctly? You got a bachelor's in English. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yes. I went to New York University. Ah. uh, And I majored in English because when I got there, I was undecided. Spent my first year taking um, every class in just a variety of areas, comp sci, writing, like acting, just just Mm -hmm. all these different cognitive neuroscience, just anything that sounded interesting that I was like, maybe that's what I want to do with my life. (laughs) And then sophomore year, I wanted to do the same thing. But there was this English class that I wanted to take that was like the intro English class. And they were like, well, you have to declare as an English major to do this. And I was like, okay, well, I don't have anything else I want to declare as a major. I can always change it. So I did that. And then the next year when I got back to school, I'd only taken two English classes, but I realized I wanted to be in LA and I wanted to act. And I was like, well, I can graduate in a year instead of two years if I just go full bore on the English major and take eight eight English classes this year. Right. And so that's what I did. And that's why I have a BA in English that I have never once used for any professional thing. <laughs> nobody's, well, ever w- nobody's ever been like, oh, you have a degree in English. <laughs> well, now we want to hire
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that brings me up specifically to my question. So what are your thoughts about writers and filmmakers needing higher education? Is it worth it? I seem to get mixed results on this question.
1: I would say my parents paid a lot of money for me to get a couple of reading lists and <laughs> that said it's this it's this two-sided coin because do I think that the education I got was worth the the 200,000 or 180,000 or whatever close to that they shelled out for this education no I do not but ever since I've graduated there has been a number of times where people have seen my email or seen my resume and they've said, Oh, you went to NYU. And there's that, there there's that thing where you can hear in the way they say it, that they're, they're changing their judgment of me. They're like, Oh, okay. (laughs) I, I know that school. Like, and I can't, I don't know. There's no way to, for me to quantify, right? Like, uh, so, Omnific. When I met with the publisher after they offered me to publish the book, they said the thing that stuck out was that I was a young man writing romance about a male character, and they don't get a lot of that. Hmm. But I don't know if the fact that I had an NYU email address also weighed in their mind, or that I had that I was at NYU made them think. Actually, I, w- I had already graduated. That I had graduated, you know, with with the honors I graduated with, made them think. Oh, okay, there is some value to this. So it's a tricky question because. I don't think it's worth going into debt for, but Mm -hmm. it's undeniable that the reputations of schools can rub off on you. Whether you're a filmmaker going to USC or an actor at Tisch and NYU, like we, as it's, it's kind of gets back to our conversation about reality and shared reality. Like a lot of people, especially in America have agreed like, Oh, if somebody goes to Harvard, they must be smart. We've agreed on these cultural signifiers that even though they're not true 100% of the time, (laughs) or I would argue even close to 100% of the time, there are a lot of stupid people at Harvard, but believe you me, (laughs) there's a lot of smart people there too. But we like to rely on institutional markers of intelligence as a heuristic to shortcut us instead of having to actually evaluate someone. So if you can afford to go to these schools and get that stamp of approval on you, Go. You'll you'll meet some great people and you'll get access to amazing equipment if you're a filmmaker and it'll change people's reputation of you. Do I think it should? No, but it it undeniably will. And part it's part of the way that like our society is set up so that rich people and rich people's kids can be set up for success in whatever field they choose because they can afford to throw away all this money on going to a to a big school that has that kind of reaction to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you, because a lot of my listeners are self-published authors, what does it take to get published traditionally? You said you were with Omnific, was it called, which is, I assume, a subsidiary of uh, Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster.
1: Yeah, they're, they're an imprint of Simon & Schuster. I would imagine it takes a lot of the same qualities that it takes to be a successful self publisher it takes persistence and it takes a passion for your your work. I had any number of agents who did not reply to my email or would read 10 pages of my book and say this isn't for me. Or, you know, this is great writing, but I just don't connect with this character. I think he's too negative. I think he's too angry. And I was like, well, his best friend just died. You know, maybe, maybe he goes somewhere with his arc, but you, you only read 10 pages. But <laughs> for me, the decision came down to, at the time, and still is how I feel, like, I'm a writer. I'm not a publisher. Like, if you are, if you self-publish, you have to spend an unbelievable amount of time marketing your books Hiring somebody to design the book cover, like going through one of these printers or printing your own copy somehow. Like you have to be that you have to run it a whole business of selling books. And that turns writing your books into five to 10% of your job. And by going with a traditional publisher, I give up a lot of the revenue. I give up a lot of the of the control of the look and and decisions on like price points and stuff like that. But I got, I get to focus on writing and I get the, when I am addressing that part of my career, the the fiction part of my career, 80% of the time I put into it is stuff writing things. And that was more important to me than trying to, you know, become a self-publishing tycoon. So I would imagine a lot of your listeners that are self-published, like, the successful ones certainly like probably get better profit margins on their books than I do and potentially have sold more copies copies than I do and made decisions that were better for them than my publisher might make for me. But I just wasn't at a point where like, it's kind of that cultural institution, that stamp of legitimacy. Like if I tell someone I self published my book, they're kind of like, okay, great. Like, good for you, Ian, please don't tell me anymore. But when (laughs) I say my book was published by Simon and Schuster, Most people, even if they don't read books, are like, oh,
0: it's the NYU response again. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) It's like, tell me more. Like, how did you get such a major company to like want to do that? And so in film, I've become somebody who is very much like, I think I know enough where I can produce my own film and control my own content and monetize my own content. And I am doing that even though it means doing a lot of those things, those businessy things that I don't like as much as the creative. But with books, I, for me, it's a pure creative pursuit. And I might recognize the business value of my novels and see that they could be capitalized on. I just don't want to be the one who has to stand on the corner holding it up saying, this is great, this is amazing writing. I want to be the person who writes it and then hands it to a publisher who can then push it and say, this guy's great, come read his books. Ultimately, like I write for myself and as much as I want, to monetize things. And I'm glad I've been able to monetize things like writing for me is always like the person who's going to judge my books harshest. And the one who at, I care the most about enjoying reading it is, is myself personally.
0: That's a good answer. Now, this next question, you probably answered it a little bit with this one, but if you have anything else, it's what advice or nugget of wisdom can you give anyone looking to write books or make films and live a creative life with the hopes of earning a living from it someday? What would you tell that person?
1: I have this whole spiel on consumption and production, and I think this applies to any art form. And there are art forms I don't practice at all, so people can tell me I'm completely wrong about this. But I would say whether you want to be Beethoven or Stephen King or Tom Hanks or Steven Spielberg or the best coder on the block, if you want to be producing great things, you need to be consuming great things. So I read from when I was, four or five to when I was 16 or 17, before I started writing at all, I read over a thousand books. I wasn't doing it because I was like, I want to turn into a writer. I was doing it because I loved consuming novels. And then when it came time to write my own novel, I had this rich, like depth of a feeling where I would write something and I an intuitive sense of how books are supposed to go because I had consumed so many books. And so when I make choices where I break the rules of how books normally go, they're conscious choices. I'm saying, I know how people normally do it. I think it would be cool if somebody did it like this. And filmmaking is the same way. Film is just a lot of cultural references built up that people are referencing all these great films that have come before and you can watch them and enjoy them and not catch those. But if you really want to have a conversation with the zeitgeist where people want to seek out your work, you need to know what's already been done to do interesting things. So for any artist, any whatever you want to do, find people that you think are great at it and consume their shit. Read great authors books. Watch great films. If you're a programmer, like get the code for apps that you think are really cool and figure out how they did it and how they developed it. And just consume as much as you can. And really you should be consuming 10 to a hundred times as much as you're producing of your own stuff. And when you do it that way, at least for me, it makes the production the easiest part. When I sit down to write, that is the fun part. I, I, it just flows out of me. I have all these ideas and I'm just getting them on paper. And I don't think it would be that way if I did not read and as many books as I did and watch as many TV shows and films as I did, it's like you're out. It's like, it's kind of like, you know, your shit is made up of what you eat. Right. If you're eating, if you're eating bad food, (laughs) your shit's going to be really stinky and not healthy. But if you're, it's the same way with what you're putting out. If you're watching great films, you're going to make better stuff and more interesting choices.
0: I I believe the term is you are what you eat. There you uh, go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's what it is. It's not. It's not. It's not. You poop what you eat.
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> same. Same concept, I guess.
1: Same concept. One's a little cleaner. One. <laughs> one's a little more ready for that mass market appeal. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and one is my filthy version.
0: <laughs> Very good advice, though. Absolutely. Now, where can people follow you and your work, get your book, and so forth?
1: Uh, my book is available. Wherever books are sold, particularly eBooks, it's on Simon & Schuster's website. You can read the first four chapters for free. I encourage you to do so uh, at ianmark.ptnt.com. I will say for the romantics out there, those first four chapters are rough. There is a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking, and a lot of negativity. But if you keep going through, you'll get to meet Zoe, who I think is a wonderful, wonderful person. And I would fall in love with her if she was real. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at The Real Ian Mark. Uh, and you can follow my film at The More Perfect Union film on Instagram. You can go to our website, a You can make a tax deductible contribution today if you'd like to give me your money instead of the government. I promise you I'll do better things with it and I won't kill <laughs> any people overseas. Um, I also host a podcast called Stone Studies that should be out by the time this airs. Uh, it's coming out from a company called World Vibe, And basically, I talk to different academics and smart people every week while we while we get stoned. Uh, oh. or sometimes just I get stoned, but I encourage people to get stoned. And yeah, those are oh, and you can you can check out my improv group, the Pasadonuts, uh at Pasadonuts Improv on YouTube. Uh, or at Pasadonuts on Facebook and Instagram. We live stream a show every week. Um, We're switching to Saturdays now. So Saturdays at two, we're going to be live streaming a 15 minute improv show. Uh, And I believe those are all my projects to plug.
0: Very good. And I will make sure I have those uh, links in the show notes. And thank you for sharing your story and coming on the Story King podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. This was super fun and uh, it was great meeting you.
0: So that was my conversation with Ian Mark. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'll make sure all of his links are in the show notes. Don't forget to sign up on storykingbooks.com to get your free copy of Kane's Confession. Remember, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, you can visit my website or amazon.com and for less than $5, purchase my latest ebook resource Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash thestoryking. All those links will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of subscribing to it and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or the medium of your choice. And share it with your friends and family on social media. I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Story King podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. Please join us next time. Until then.